We're in week two of our new preaching series. As I showed you last week, we're going to alter Armstrong's quote, whether he likes it or not. Here's the big idea when it comes to sharing the gospel. We take one small step, they take one giant leap, right? That's going to be the the whole point of this whole message series. Um, We being followers of Jesus Christ on a mission from God, and they being folks not yet on God's mission. When we risk that one small step, they gain so much. But as we're going to learn in this series, for them to make that big leap, we've got to make the right small step, right? We got to pay attention to that small step we take toward them because that, that one step is going to say a lot about the God that we worship. And, and they're going to see, because we represent God, they're going to say, well, that must be the way God is. So the way we take that one small step towards somebody who does not yet know Jesus is crucial. So, so important. Um, and today I want to look at one aspect of what that kind of a step might look like. Um, a while back, I had a new Toyota pickup, and I had a brand-new Charger hat on. I was feeling it, right? I'm driving down the road, and I'm king of the highway. And I stopped to get a big gulp, driving down the highway. I'm bald, I think, at that point, rolling down the windows. There's no hair flying. There's no problems. And my brand-new Charger hat, the wind caught it, and I, and I grabbed for it. It's like, oh, man, it's, it's in the back seat. It's fine. And I continue to drive, and I glance down, and, like, my big gulp is empty. And I'm thinking, well, that's strange. Like, the lid, the straw, like, it, like it's empty. And I was like, I do not remember drinking this big gulp. Continue driving, and then it dawned on me, my, my big gulp and my soda on my hat are in the back seat, making a mess together. I was juggling too many things. Maybe you've done that. Right? You should have laid something down before you picked up that something else. And you tried to get through the door, you tried to do something, and, and you just you made a mess of it. Just, just made a mess of it. Right? We've all heard about the dangers of distracted driving. <laughs> you understand that auto manufacturers weren't all on board at first. This is a picture of a VW on the left, a 1959 bug. You could make coffee as you were flying down the road in your one-ton guided missile. It's amazing. Look at it. He's even got the fat little cup that you have in your house that will spill everywhere when you jiggle it instead of the tall ones on the left. You know, we've learned, right? If, if, you, if you're going to do all this stuff while you're driving, you can't have that old school cup. You've got to have a tall, thin cup. Entire industries are screaming, you can have it all, right? And you can do all of it while you're driving down the road. You know, I grew up watching men shaving, women putting on their makeup, and now I see women shaving and guys putting on makeup in the car next to me, and I'm just thinking, okay, that's, that's fine, whatever. Now, I'm not sure who behind, who's behind it all, but I know manufacturers, the auto manufacturers, are working to stop all this multitasking. When my wife drives our new Subaru, she has to hit a, a little green button. Uh, it's, I'm pretty sure it's green. It might be brown. But it's, but it's, it's I agree And like by hitting that button, you're agreeing to not be messing around with anything. You won't be reading any magazines, right? You won't be talking to any friends. You're going to be not distracted while you're driving. That's the whole point. You hit that button. Not to be distracted. See, but the button won't work while you're backing out of the garage. See, because if you were playing with the the, the radio while you're in reverse, that, that would be a distraction. 
so Subaru won't let you do that. So as you're backing out of the driveway, as Diane's backing out of the driveway, she has my radio station blaring at full volume. I like to feel my music. And she's trying not to be distracted. And the music is blaring because the car is set on auto on. So you turn the key on and the radio comes on. It just comes on. We have no choice. You don't turn on the radio. It turns on and we haven't figured out how to turn on the auto off, auto on. So it's playing max volume. Anyway, she has to agree not to be distracted while the radio is blaring. Can't be turned down. Can't be turned off. And sometimes, sometimes, even after hitting the button multiple times and you haven't even put it in reverse yet, it's like the car is deliberately pausing to ask you, are you absolutely certain that you've laid down everything that could possibly distract you when you pick up this task of driving? Right? It's like it knows. I'm like, I'm hitting the button and then the music's like, ah! We want it all as drivers, right? We... I, I see, and I'm glad they're self-driving cars now because there's no way you can drive your car and do all the things that they're putting in these cars. I mean, they're, they're amazing, amazing how many things that you can do while you are getting from point A to point B. We're so enamored with all of our stuff that we find it increasingly difficult to focus on the main thing, which is to get ourselves and our friends safely from point A to point B. I want to look at John chapter 13 this morning. Those stories all had a point. Jesus is going to show his disciples, he's going to show us also that sometimes to take something up, it may require us to lay down something else. I'm going to start at verse 1 of chapter 13, if you follow along. I think it'll be on the wall behind me. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And a little bit further on, we find not only was Jesus going to God, but Jesus had actually come from God. Therefore, he was actually returning to God. This wasn't a first-time trip to the Father, right? He's returning. Like, you've all been on long trips and how exciting it is to, to get home. I know my wife and I, when we're going somewhere, we'll stop, sightsee just a little bit. But when we're on our way home, mm-mm. <laughs> nothing is going to stop us because she's usually got to go to the bathroom too. I shouldn't have said that. But anyway, that was way too much. <laughs> Um, it, it'd be easy, right? It'd be so easy to understand if Jesus developed senioritis. Right? Y'all know what that is, right? Senioritis, short-timer syndrome, right? To kick back, let others worry and toil, kind of get an attitude of been there, done that. Maybe just a certain amount of contempt, like that's all beneath me now. I'm going back to the Father and... <sighs> These people, they never got it from step one, and they're just, just. I mean, we would have understood to a certain degree, right? How do you spell retired? Just mail it in at this point, right? We'd understand because we've all seen it. And if we're really, really honest with ourselves, that's kind of our plan too, right? When we retire, oh, I don't have to worry, don't have to do all this, you know, all this kind of stuff. Oh, that, that good times. But here's the crazy thing. Right at the time... When he was so close to being done, just don't let the door hit you on your wave. He's right there. At that point, he finds another gear. He finds another gear for us. He doesn't get senioritis. He doesn't mail it in. Right? He finds that extra gear because he loves us to death. Let me continue in verse 2 and 3. It says this, the evening meal was in progress. And the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. 
Now, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. That's the further on there. So in addition to knowing that he came from God and was returning to God, he also knew that all power was given to him. Now, now kind of keep track of these things that are on Jesus' mind, right? Now, for most people, this would be a recipe for disaster, right? Pride would step in. Immediately, we'd start, most of us would start acting like we own the place, right? Start calling the shots but not really willing to do any of the work because that's beneath us just a little bit. Um, all power had been given to him. But Jesus knew that the manner by which he wielded that power, right, would be understood as the way God wields power. So he was keenly aware that he reflected the heavenly father and everything that he did would be ascribed to the father. Now, if Jesus would do what the God the father wanted, then God would be glorified and God would then glorify Jesus for what he was about to do. There's something else that Jesus knew, right? So he's got a couple things. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that seated around the table with him was somebody that was going to betray him. Another would deny even knowing him. And the rest, when things got real, run, save their lives, save their reputations. So... You're leaving soon anyways. You have the power to do anything you want. The team seems to be falling apart all around you. It would be so, so easy. I mean, if you're just human, let's just, just pretend like we're totally human right now. Let's just leave Jesus by himself for a moment. Most of us, it would be so easy to just quit at that point, right? Get cynical, get angry, get bitter. <laughs> There's one last thing that Jesus knew. And this is recorded in Luke's gospel. We have an incredibly disappointing exchange. All of this is on Jesus' mind. And here in the midst of the dinner, they begin to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. Jesus had just informed them that somebody that, that I'm meeting with is going to betray me, right? And they're like, oh, who is it? Who is it? Who is it? And at the same time, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be considered the greatest, so if you're keeping track of things, Jesus on, on his mind, right? He came from God. He's returning to God. All power was given to him. One disciple was about to betray him. Another was to deny him. The rest were going to disown him. And now they're arguing over which of them would be considered the greatest in Jesus's kingdom. Now, let me just step back a moment. What would you do? What would you do? Turn your two weeks resignation, I'm out of here. This is your problem now, I'm done. I'll just, I, I don't know how you guys would respond. Here's, here's how Jesus, I'm going to go back to John chapter 13. Here's what Jesus does. With all this on his mind, he got up from the meal and he took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. You, most of you know what's going to happen next. What well, you might not have noticed that throughout this narrative and, and several others, John, the Apostle John, in his writing, he's very, very careful about the, the words he uses. And throughout his gospel, he uses two key verbs to talk about Jesus and his ministry. Or they're, they're cognates of various synonyms of those other types of verbs, same verbs, to lay down and to take up. And throughout John, you're going to catch these verbs or, or forms of these verbs that in everything that Jesus does, he lays down something first before he is able to 
pick up something. Even to describe his death and his resurrection. I want to show you this from John chapter 10, verse 17, just a few chapters before. It says, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. Again, these verbs. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. And in our passage this morning, in order to demonstrate how God wields power, Jesus actually lays down Again, if you looked at the, the, ver- the Greek verbiage, it would be he laid down his outer clothing, and that, that speaks volumes. When he laid down that outer clothing, I want you to picture what his outer clothing consisted of. He was an observant Jew, right? This was a, an outfit. It had tassels, I mean, the whole nine yards. And when he took that off, he wasn't just taking off his outer clothing. He was laying down all of his authority. He's left with just his T-shirt and... I'm not terribly sure what else, but all of the, he's not just taken off so that they won't get dirty, but I'm sure he was concerned a little bit about that too. I don't want to get this stuff dirty, but I think there's so much more involved in him taking, laying down his authority. I think part of the reason that he takes off that, all the paraphernalia of power, is to get eyeball to eyeball with his disciples. I don't know if you've ever done this with a, a small child. When you're standing up, they cower, right? But if you were to get on the floor in front of a little kid, something happens, right? I've had little kids, I don't even know who they are. They, they jump in my lap, right? Where the moment before they were cowering behind mommy's leg, and then when I get down on the floor eyeball to eyeball with them, they go, eh, this guy's not scary. He ain't got any hair. And all of a sudden, they're like my buddy and my friend, but I had to... But here's the crazy thing about this passage here. Jesus doesn't stop at their station. He goes even lower, right? When he laid down his authority, what is he? He takes up the uniform of a slave. So he lays down all of his rights, all of his authority, and he, and he, he picks up the clothing of a slave. After that, he poured water into the basin and began to wash his disciples' feet. This is verse 5, chapter 13. Drying them with the towel that was wrapped around them. And for however long that took, and I, I really hadn't thought about this, there were at least 12. It doesn't say how many people were there. This would have taken a long, long, awkward time as every disciple in the room is thinking, I should have done this. The master is washing our feet. What are we thinking? And it just, he moved from one person to the next. And this took time. I'm sure it was silent like this, like, oh, man, I hope I clip my toenails because my feet are the ugliest part of me. And it's like, oh, this is... Jesus quite literally empties who he was into the bowl on behalf of each and every one of those 12-plus disciples present. Into that bowl went every right, privilege, prerogative, authority, and power that Jesus possessed. And he possessed all of that at that moment. 
And he used all his rights, privileges, prerogatives, authority, and power to serve the disciples. That's what he used it all for, to serve the disciples. But it was more than an act of self-humiliation, right? It was an act of forgiveness in advance to each and every disciple that would betray him, that would deny him, that would run from him. It's like, Jesus, I know what you're going to do. I'm going to wash your feet anyway. I'm going to clean you. Continuing at verse 12, says this, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. And you notice again the verbiage here. Puts back on his authority. He is, he is God the Son, right? And he knows this. And he's going to return to his place right here, but he's really going to be returning to the Father, right? So John's playing with these verbs, different levels. Echoes of taking up his life again and returning to the Father. But they don't understand. <laughs> They never understand. So Jesus explains, you call me teacher and Lord and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. This was Eastern, Middle Eastern culture, right? Whatever the host did, the, the recipients of dinner, they were supposed to respond in kind. This was the way it worked, right? And so there was that expectation that you will, he, Jesus didn't have to say it. They knew, oh. Man, now we got to wash people's feet. I have set an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. So at one level, we have an, an enacted parable of Jesus, his imminent death. Right? The foot washing symbolizes the saving work of Jesus that he accomplishes on the cross. And I was sharing this morning with somebody that this is actually an ordinance in some, a lot of churches, Eastern Orthodox churches. This is something that they do. They wash each other's feet. The Protestant church didn't get into that too heavily. I understand um, a couple Wesleyan churches, Church of God in Anderson, Indiana, and Seventh-day Adventist. They have foot washing as an actual ordinance, kind of like our, our marriage. It's a God-instituted thing. But the fact of the matter is, at another level, it really isn't about water or washing or cleansing because we can't do those things. Christ was saying, this is what I'm doing for you, and nobody else can do this for you. Only I can do this for you. You can't cleanse people. So don't get in your mind, we're going to be starting foot washing, and we're going to be cleaning people's sins away. That's not the idea here. The idea is about receiving Jesus' gesture of hospitality and then being blessed if you go and do the same. So Jesus sends Judas on to his task, and then he says this, starting in verse 33. He says, my children, and you'll remember in the verse 1 of, of John, right? We, we were told that if we accept Christ, that we would have the right to become children of God. So, so again, the apostle John is echoing this, my children. And then in chapter 14, Jesus assures them that he's going to be returning to the Father. They're all freaking out, but he says, don't worry, I won't leave you as what? Orphans. So he says, my children, my little children, in some of your translations, little children, I will be with you only a little while longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. Jesus assures them. They couldn't follow. They couldn't follow Jesus yet. But they could realize an aspect of that divine realm, right? They could love one another. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. 
By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, this wasn't new as in like previously unknown, right? This is from uh, Leviticus and Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 6, Leviticus chapter 19. Again, they've known love your God and love your neighbor. This is absolutely nothing new. Instead, the newness really refers to the fact that this would characterize the new covenant, right? The, the new covenant in Christ's blood. And its newness reflects the new standard that Jesus initiated. Love as I have loved you, right? For the Jewish people, in a, this is kind of a gross oversimplification. They're kind of, they're their overriding thought is don't do harm, right? Do no harm. And Jesus is saying, mm-mm, I'm raising that bar. I'm setting that bar way, way up there. How we love each other, even in the midst of disagreements, that will be the character trait and the identity of God's people. Remember, we've been talking about boundary markers. That's our boundary marker. Right? That's how people know. It's not that we're carrying a big giant Bible, not that we're wearing a tie on Sunday, not that we're any of those kind of other things. Is that how we love each other. And again, I want to make this point. He is not talking about how we love the lost. He's talking about how we love each other when we are so angry with each other, the decisions that we're making, and we just want to wring each other's neck. And, and, and this pastor is saying, no. <laughs> right? You will lay down your lives for each other. And in fact, Jesus is, is even more adamant than he is in chapter 13. Let's jump to chapter 15 very quickly here. It says, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friend. And again, it's easy to imagine martyrdom, right? This is the passage for every veterans Memorial Day celebration. You'll see it everywhere. But Jesus isn't calling us to lay down and die. He's, he's calling us to lay down and die to self. Right? Paul says we need living sacrifices laid on the altar, not any more dead sacrifices. Right? I need living I need you to die to yourself. He's calling us to lay down our need to be right, our privileges and our prerogatives. Yes, he does. There will be times when we and, and some of us will be called to martyrdom. But that's not primarily the call Right? Christ doesn't need a bunch of dead followers. I know that's crass to say it that way, but it's true. He's asking us to die to self, to lay ourselves on the altar. As I have loved you models the kind rather than the degree of love. Right? We all think love. How much can I love? It's not a question of how much, but how do you love? You can have a selfish love. You have a whole bunch of weird loves, and it can be through the roof. But is it the kind of love that serves your fellow neighbor? It was to be a love that serves as much as a love that dies for one another. And this mutual inner community love was not only the hallmark of our community, it would be the key to our mission. I want to make sure we understand that. If we don't get along, if we can't figure out how to get along and we go to somebody and say, God loves you, they're going to laugh in our face. You all can't even love each other and you're claiming that you're going to be able to love me? I'm a mess. You all can't even love each other and you all seem pretty cleaned up. I don't, I don't buy it. Mutual love was to be the proof in the pudding that would lend credence and believability to each one small step that we take. Just as Jesus was the proof in the pudding of God's love for us, 
So our love for one another serves as proof of the pudding of God's love for those not yet on board with his mission. Again, understand we're talking about love for each other, not those yet on board. Our love for those already on board, our love for each other, that will be our tool, right? That, that's, that's the biggest golf club in our golf bag. That's the way we are going to love them is if we can prove that we can love each other. Tall order. So I want to challenge you. I want to ask you, challenge you, how do you discuss concerns, politics, everything, religion, church, society? How do you, and I just, I want to ask you to kind of play the recorder in your mind. How do you talk in front of non-believers? How do you sound to their ears? I want to close. I want all of us to push the I agree button together. Right? A little green button in my, in my Subaru. The way I want to do it, I want to read Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11. I want you, some of you are catching on. This is my favorite verse in the Bible. I come back to this all the time. This is kind of an, an agreement button, this passage. Right? And if, and if, I'm going to read it. I'd like you to just read it silently to yourself. And this is you hitting that agreement button. I will not be distracted by little things that go on. I, we have one goal. That's to love each other so that we can better love people that don't know Jesus. So I want to read Philippians 2. And this is kind of part of our closing prayer. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ... If any comfort from his love, if any common sharing of the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. So you catch those verbiage there. Again, it's not John's, but Paul has picked up on it. Jesus has laid down, he's emptied himself and all his rights. And being found in appearance as a man, some of your passages have taken on the form of a servant. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. So you, you're, you're catching him laying down all of his prerogatives, all of his rights, so that he, he can take us up. Couldn't do both. One had to be laid down. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge 
that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So I just want to close. What do you need to lay down so that you can take up whatever cross he's got planned for you? And we all got a cross. What do you got to lay down in order to pick up what he's asking you to pick up? Father, thank you. Thank you for this passage. Thank you for the challenge. Thank you for just being honest with us and telling us this will work and this won't work. Father, what works best is is love. From Genesis to Revelation, it's love. Loving you and being so filled with you, but we can't help but love others. Father, when we're filled with you, we, we have your heart and we can see what you see and feel what you feel. So, Father, give us your eyes. Give us your heart. Help us to see maybe in the midst of everything going on in our world today that there are maybe some things that we need to lay down because we want to take up what you have for us. So, Father, for each individual, whatever it is that you are telling them that needs to be laid down, Father, continue to encourage them with your spirit. Thank you for for all of this. In your son's name I pray.